There's just not much to do in Oklahoma, is there? Some people dedicate their lives to watching college football, others to drinking beer, and a select few decide to start bands. And in 1983, the Flaming Lips joined the aimless fray of Oklahoma-based rockers. Their sound drifted in and out of post-punk and experimental rock with wasteland-inspired lyricism that gave the band, uh, shall we say, character. The Flaming Lips are the only band to score both a 0.0 and a 10.0 from Pitchfork, and the latter of which is The Soft Bulletin, an album that asks life's hardest questions in a purely abstract way. The Soft Bulletin is hard to grasp, impossible to understand, and often misunderstood. But above all of that, The Soft Bulletin is an art school album. And we are back on art school albums. Today, I have a very special guest who requested that we talk about a specific album. Most of these episodes so far, there's either been a joint agreement that this is what we talk about, or I've approached certain people and said, I'd like to hear you talk about this. Well, this guest came to me and said, I would like to discuss this on your podcast. And my guest today is Owen Mysterievich. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just so passionate here. about it, I had to bring it up. So, Well, somebody has to be passionate about the Flaming Lips, <laughs> and I guess that person is you. And that's not a bad thing, Yeah. Uh, but I want to know kind of right off the bat, let's get into it. Mm-hmm. First time you heard the Flaming Lips. It was one of the first bands I had ever listened to, really. I mean, I, I probably heard a lot of music up until that point. My dad played a lot of Wilco in the car, a lot of just kind of good stuff. He was a big Pixies fan and stuff like that. But um, I think we were watching David Letterman. Okay. And they were they were performing the Yeah 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 song, which is on one of their later albums. And as a kid, I mean that song really kind of reaches you as a kid. It's a goofy song. Uh, and from then on, I was like, Oh, who is that band? And we were downloading the albums on iTunes and listening over and over. And I used to listen to not the soft bulletin, but Yoshimi battles, the pink robots, like every night. And for that's like the, the record year. after the soft bulletin. Correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, very different upbringings for you. And I, I say this not as a joke, but as literally, literally as I possibly can. Uh, <laughs> some of the first music I heard was like Jay-Z's the blueprint 50 cents, get rich or die trying mm-hmm. uh, some throwback run DMC stuff. The flaming lips, I can't say they've never been on in my father's car because uh, she don't use Jelly comes on on Sirius XM's Lithium quite often. Right. That is when we change the channel and go to First Wave. <laughs> that is when some Echo and the Bunnymen comes on. Ooh. You know, we switch things up a little bit, and all of a sudden I'm in a much better mood because right. that was my only knowledge of the Flaming Lips before you came to me. And I, I knew they were a critically acclaimed band. I knew they were, I say this with air quotes, a little bit out there. But I had only known the one hit, and I had mm. never delved deeper into their discography, nor had I ever really felt like doing it, just from the little bit I know. Right. Uh, but we we came here to the Soft Bulletin, an album released in 1999, um, an album that drew a 10.0, a perfect score from Pitchfork. Mm-hmm. The record before that, a 0.0. Has there ever been a band that you know of that is so fearless in, in their mission that you know their their prior record 
was supposed to be played, you know, four CDs at a time. They were doing this oh, thing called Zyrica. the... Oh, yes, Zyrica. Yeah, yeah, okay. They're doing this thing called the parking lot experiment where they've got people playing, you know, one tape deck at the same exact time in the parking lot. They're trying all these sonic changes, if mm-hmm. you will. And then they come out and they put out what is a pretty good rock record. But to you, are the Flaming Lips kind of this marker of innovation in rock music? Uh, not just rock music, but the studio in general. Um, working in a studio and really, you know, expanding upon what that means. So for this album, and this was recorded at the same time as Zyrica. And yeah. that, Zyrica, I think it was one of those albums that Pitchfork gave a, a zero and then a colon ten. Because it's yes. like, you can't really, well, there's they, no they, real point in reviewing it. Because it's like, it's a really out there, meant to be crazy, freaky album. And I've never heard it really to this day. I've heard, because for viewers that don't know the way Zyrica works is you play four tapes at the same time. Yes, correct. To play the album. And they're purposely kind of off a little bit. And they, they don't really sync up. But that's kind of a... The part of it, you're supposed to have a party and listen to it. And I honestly really like Zyrica. But that, that album was made at the same time as Soft Bullet. And because of the the issues they ran into with recording Zyrica, they had to build their own studio. Um, there would be no way to record these records uh, without spending a million dollars in a normal studio. So they worked with Dave Fridman and they built, I think it was Tarbox Road Studios in uh, like like uh in new york somewhere yeah that sounds right yeah and uh these are weird records uh for sure they are far <laughs> more abstract than what i typically listen to and i i listen to the song Bolton a good six or seven times all the way through to prepare for this mm-hmm. and it grew on me every time i listened to it but it still i came away from it there are a lot of songs i enjoyed and we'll discuss those but yeah. it was so far out of my comfort zone of what I typically listen to. And I think a lot of that goes to what you just pointed out of it is a record that was so much manufactured and crafted in a studio. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that speaks to you because you are a musician, the band Paddlefish, correct? True. Yes. I am not a musician. (laughs) I love music. It's my favorite thing in the world. I do not play instruments. Mm -hmm. When When I really am enjoying music, um, there is a live feel to it. I don't care as much about crafting these these studios and this big sound that you can only do in the studio and then it's hard to replicate live. Mm-hmm. My favorite band is The Smiths, and I think what made them work so well is that Johnny Marr, their guitarist, was someone who was obsessed with spending time in the studio trying out new things, always trying to find a new sound to push the band forward. Mm-hmm. Morrissey, on the other hand, uninterested in spending time in the studio to this day he does a few takes they're good enough for him he calls it a day where he shines is on stage he's someone that likes being in front of a crowd performing live i tend to gravitate towards those people Mm -hmm. i think just because of my own interest i mean i like being on stage and performing i don't like spending time in a studio playing with pedals and whatnot but is that something that you like about the flaming lips is that studio time yeah so i think this goes into what kind of people we are when we listen to music. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's all about records. Yeah. I, I like live performances. I think shows can be fun, but nothing beats a good record. And I think, I don't know. And you're also a, a Silver Juice fan. Huge and Silver Juice fan, my yeah. F- 
my uh, good friend Timmy, he's a, a silver juice nut as well. Yes. And he says the same sort of thing. He's like, I'm, I don't really particularly care about whether you crafted a studio masterpiece. And I think that's kind of silver Jew's whole thing is it's an imperfect perfection. Yes. You well, know? it goes into that idea of, you know, David Berman always said, my favorite singers couldn't sing. Right. I hear that a lot from people that are maybe not as into the music that I like as well, you know, they're not singing or it's hard to sing along to, but I'm very uninterested in musicians that sound like they could win a talent show. That's what I always yeah. say is I, if, if you're having that sort of obvious appeal, I just don't care that much. And the flaming lips, their vocals are not talent show quality. <laughs> Wayne Coyne could never win a talent show. They're not they're not winning America's Got Talent anytime soon. I'm not yeah. concerned about that. But there is just a heavy instrumental layers and layers and tracks and tracks on the Soft Bolton album. And it was something that I was not used to. Mm -hmm. A very different sound for me. But it's something you seem to prefer. Yeah, and this is also coming from I'm a, a huge fan of shoegaze music, too, which is all about that, too. Just layers upon layers of guitars and synthesizers and, and whatnot. So I think this is a record that maybe you need to do your homework first, or you need to get into certain records before you get into it. You told me that same thing about Wilco once in a conversation. Yeah. That I had spent a few different times listening to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, if not all the way through, then a good chunk of the album. And I, it's a weird spot in life to be pulling your hair out because you're frustrated that you don't understand Wilco. <laughs> yeah. But I was very much in that spot where I was like, I should like this. Right. I, alt country, Chicago. Yeah. The towers on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. <laughs> I like all of these things. Why do I not like Wilco? And then you said, hold up. Let's, let's reel it back in. <laughs> let's settle down. Start from the beginning, and I've been slowly making my way through the Wilco discography, and I think Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is, is next on the list of things I need to listen it's to. coming up. So you went yeah. through AM and being there. And... I went through AM. I liked uh, I liked AM quite a bit mm -hmm. because it was, I thought it was a simple record. I understood it kind of immediately and what it was going for. For sure. Whereas something like the Soft Bulletin, first time through, not the record for me. Yeah, I mean... This first sound you hear on it is distorted, blown out, crazy sounding drums. Absolutely. Well, let's let's hear a little bit of that. This yeah. is Race for the Prize, the first song on the Soft Bulletin. Yeah, so I've been listening to it this morning just to kind of refresh my memory of it before we went in. And just the way that first song starts, Race for the Prize, it's, I think, and this was, Soft Bulletin was an album that I got into later with the the Lips. Um, and really this, no other record sounds like this from them. So I heard it from a documentary I was watching about them. And I just heard that song. I thought, Wow. 
the drums on that with this weird glitchy string section. Yeah, how would you define that? Because it's not really a synthesizer. I mean, it, it, uh, yeah. It? So I, what Stephen Drozd is doing there, and Stephen yeah. Drozd used to be the drummer. Okay, well, Flaming Lips has had a lot of different people throughout. Stephen Drozd, Stephen Drozd uh, joined the band later on yeah. as a drummer, and then kind of became the the like sort of the songwriter in a way. But Wayne Coyne still wrote all the lyrics. But he he made a demo of this song where he had a sample of a string section and he was playing with the reels to 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 make the pitch change yeah so he went you know and i they still ended up using that track from the the demo in the original so it's it's a sample of some strings and i think it's also um a midi track of yeah. like okay that like sounds strings. right there there is a uh, a pitchfork tv documentary that kind of breaks yeah. down nearly every song on this album and that was one of the things that was discussed i'll say this right off the bat it's my favorite song on the album yeah i think this song is terrific it reminds me and i don't know if you've heard of this band or not but there's a band called elf power oh yeah it reminds me of an elf power song right which is high praise for me yeah. big elf power guy here are you um, are you a uh, uh elephant Collect, I, elephant yes. Six collector. I am. I am down with the Elephant Six. Uh, <laughs> uh, elf power. If we're discluding Neutral Milk from this, yeah. which we discussed on a prior episode, Neutral Milk hotels on the airplane over the sea. Yeah. If we're discluding them, Elf Power is my go-to there. Olivia Trimmer controls cool, but I really, oh. I really enjoy uh, the Elf Power sound, and this f- feels like something that would go on one of their great records. You know, something along the lines of Jane. Um, it's it's a great song. It is probably the most accessible song on the record. It feels like a pop song, even with all those crazy sounds. I think 20 years after the fact, pop music has developed in a way and has embraced synthesizers and alternative sounds and not in that alternative rock kind of way, but in the literal definition of alternative. For sure. That, no, this is probably not going to be played on a top 40 station, but sonically... I don't think it's that far off. Right, and I think that's what they were going for with this. Yeah. The, the record before, excluding Zyrica. So when you said that, I was thinking you were talking about Cloud's Taste Metallic, which yes. is really the record before, um, which I would have assumed Pitchfork would have rated that like a 9 out of 10 or something. But that record is like kind of a straight-up like alternative rock record. I mean, it also has its weird things. The drums sound crazy on it, and there's a lot of different piano and synth stuff. But... For them, this was like a huge departure from their normal sound. Um, I think, and you talked about that Pitchfork documentary about it. They they have said this. It's when Ronald Jones, their guitar player, quit. They're like, okay, what do we do? We just lost the best guitar player in rock music. How do we continue this band? Well, let's not make rock music. Let's make weird fucked up Disney music, you know? <laughs> and that's pretty much what this is. I mean, it sounds like a some strange Disney soundtrack. Absolutely. The band's from Oklahoma City. Yeah. Do you think just the isolation factor of being in any part of Oklahoma, that they're not, they're not the strokes coming from New York. Right. They're not a hair metal band from California. They're not even in Midwest suburbia life. They are in Oklahoma. And I don't know of many bands that come from Oklahoma. Maybe I'm ignorant to that fact, but it seems like it's a unique place to come from to have a 30-plus year career at this point. Oh, Do you yeah. think and that still has, live there. 
<laughs> exactly. They still. Do you think that has anything to do with their sound? As a musician, are you finding yourself maybe drifting towards isolation at times and writing things differently? Or if you're in a city, does do your songs come out? you know, more uh, uh, different than they would. Do you have any thoughts on that? Right. So um, I'm originally from Springfield, Missouri, which okay. I would argue is a similar isolation to living in Oklahoma. It's <laughs> in the South. It's a weird kind of, I guess, I don't know if you would call Oklahoma the Midwest, but it's a weird kind of Midwest Ish, environment, you know. Not West Coast, but you're in the, the Western belt of yeah, the country at that for point. Sure. So I, I definitely sympathize with that. Um, but do I think their sound was influenced? Maybe not the sound specifically, because I think they just worshipped records. It didn't really matter where they're from. But I think their weirdness, definitely. And I, I've heard people say it's like the punks took acid. That's the that's the flaming lips, you know. That's, like okay, that the, puts a lot of things into perspective. Right. So, and I think them growing up kind of in a, a rough side of Oklahoma City. Um, being exposed to a lot of drugs and psychedelics and just having weird, crazy lives just made them very crazy kids. And when they got into music, of course, they're going to make some crazy music. Absolutely. Well, Pitchfork rated that the 30th best song of the 1990s. Oh, wow. High praise. Yeah. Um, a song coming up next, A Spoonful Waves of Time. This is off the Flaming Lips. This off the Flaming Lips. had been won Being drunk on their plan They lifted up the sun Alright, so A Spoonful Weighs a Ton um, This is an album or a song that Wayne wrote I think after his dad passed away from cancer. So I think the whole thing is just grieving. That's the whole premise of the song. And the way he sings it, the string arrangements behind him, the crazy synth and drum section in there, I think is just so emotional and really sonically encapsulates. And I haven't really experienced death in a family, you know? Yeah. Um, But from what I can only imagine... Uh, singing about that feels like so this is one of those songs where i'm i'm so impressed by it and i'm i especially like sonically that opening portion where it's just the vocals and the strings and it there's a weight to it Mm -hmm. but this is the first song on the record and unfortunately we're only on song two where i'm a, a little frustrated by the way it comes across and there's a few mm-hmm. different factors of that of one like i said this album is a little bit outside of what i would normally listen to and when i speak about music critically i recognize that there are things that are good that are also just not my cup of tea right a lot of this album falls into that right there's something about this though where this is asking life's hardest questions and and pondering life in such an in-depth way but they're also abstract about it. Mm-hmm. It's not 
forward. It's not necessarily coming at you. Right. It's kind of floating around you. Mm -hmm. And I come from more of a punk background where everything is at you and everything's very literal. Right, right. And I, you know, David Berman, Morrissey, things are very literal. I, I subscribe more to that theory. And A Spoonful Weighs a Ton is one of those where I don't want my criticism to be, well, it's not for me because it's mm. not that. But I feel like there's something in there that that I would prefer more, but it's just missing the mark for whatever reason. I try to be very conscious of that as I was listening to the record of, hey, this is not necessarily your type of music, but I also recognize that this is very good, and this is a very good song. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I I understand that, and it, it's for sure kind of in that abstract world of just pondering thought and pondering loss and... Uh, but it's definitely not a, a downer because in the Pitchfork right. documentary, you know, they say, you know, you can't just write a song because you're sad. Right. Which is something I beg to differ on. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of the music I like would stray away from that thought process. But I think that speaks to the truths of the album and to the, the motives that were on display here is whatever emotions you're feeling there's something bigger around you. Right. And that was something that was tough for me to wrap my head around. But as I listened to it more and more, I began to accept that idea. Mm -hmm. So track three is the spark that bled off of the soft bulletin. I accidentally touched my hand And noticed that I had been bleeding For Spark the Bled, it's almost six minutes, which if you've listened to prior episodes, you know my sweet spot is really two and a half. <laughs> I don't like a lot of songs that drift over five minutes. Owen, where do you stand on that? Do you have a preference on song length? Is there a sweet spot for you? Uh, I No, I think no, it depends. Okay. I mean, Marky Moon is one of my favorite songs of all time, and that's like nine minutes long. That's true. Yes, and... it has been a huge barrier for me getting into television <laughs> because I see that. I'm like, eh, not worth it. Right. I think... I actually probably prefer longer songs, and I it's the same with movies. I prefer long movies. My favorite movies are like three three hours long, and I for some reason I it really sucks me. And in that way, I feel like I'm a part of it. I feel like when a song is six minutes, it's like I'm in an opera or something. You know, it's it's something more than just a song. That is so strange because I. I have the exact opposite take. I struggle with most movies because I think they're too long. Right. I've always found half-hour TV to be a much more digestible format because especially if you're with commercials or if you're streaming a show that initially had commercials, you're looking at 22 minutes of content. Right. You're in and out. I, I don't necessarily think it's an attention span thing with me. I mean, that is definitely part of it. Now that I say that, it is definitely part of it. <laughs> right. But there's something that I, I like the digestible content a little bit more 
And I've said, you know, on this show before, long songs tend to lose me. I find a lot of them to be bloated. Now, they're, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit's a five-minute song. Smells Like Teen Spirit is incredible. Is it really five minutes? Yeah, it's wow. I, 501 uh, oh. is the official mix on that. <laughs> I hate that I know that off the top of my head. <laughs> what have I been doing with my entire life? But this is one. This clock's in at 555, but there's... There's a lot going on here, and there's a lot of shifting elements, and the sound changes so much that it it does hold my attention. And again, it's big, and like you said earlier, there's it's almost like a symphony. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. an an orchestral, and I'm not talking literally. I mean, there are tons of strings, but it just feels big and climactic. I can't believe it's the third song on the record. Right, and. I can't believe that it's just three guys in a studio with a couple keyboards. That's another great point. It sounds like there's 11 guys at least. Right. I mean, it's really such a big and atmospheric type of sound, but only three guys? Yeah. So at that time, Ronald Jones quit the band because he... Uh, Stephen Droz from the band, and at the time, he was a huge heroin addict. Yes. Um, and I think Ronald quit because he was was thinking that that was going to destroy the band and he didn't want to be a part of it any longer. So they, like I said, they wanted to switch up the sound and they, you know, it's just the three of them. But like those three guys, I mean, I feel like, I don't even know what I'm saying here. It's crazy that that, you know, Wayne supplied those lyrics and Steven basically built that up. I think, I think Michael Ivins, the bass player, he was pretty much kind of on the engineering side of it more. Um, but this is really one dude with a notebook and a couple keyboards figuring out how to make his own symphony from scratch Man- for the first manipulating time. Manipulating a lot of sounds. You know, it's yeah. not one of those, there's a lot of albums that feel like they, they come out naturally and they pour out of the artist very quickly. Right. There's manipulation involved here from a purely technical standpoint. They had to do a lot of different things to get these sounds and... It speaks to what we talked about earlier. You, as someone that likes being in the studio, that likes creating, right. you're like, oh my God, this is incredible. To right. me, I'm going, you probably could have plugged in a Stratocaster right. and gotten an <laughs> equally as good song out of this. And I get that too, because for me, when I look at it, it's a feat, a feat of yeah, recording. For sure. And for you as a consumer of just listening to music, you know, you, that may not cross your mind or, or matter to you as much, which is, was, which is just as valid. And it's just i i'm a fan of weird recording absolutely yeah. well and that's something that i struggle with especially with like jam bands which oh i don't love jam bands particularly okay good to know yeah that's <laughs> why i like you owen um but i feel like and it's jam bands it's metal bands right it's bands where they're gonna play a six minute guitar solo live and i go back to live instead of in the studio right it all feels so self-indulgent and that if you really like guitars or if you really like that sound because you might play that sound, you're going to be okay with that. But I go back to all my favorite singers couldn't sing. Right. I'm someone who is very much attached to the lyrics more so than any instrumentals, any guitar solo, any drum beat. Those are all great. There are drums that I love on, you know, all the albums I like. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I'm really concerned about the lyrics and what the song is either metaphorically or literally saying. Mm -hmm. And that was part of my barrier with this was, like I said, it's so big and abstract and there are these big ideas. And a lot of this album seems to be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but 
there's some drug use involved that I think really influences the sound and influences a lot of these lyrics. For sure. Which is something that I just don't... Not that I don't have time for, because, you know, yeah. Guns N' Roses' first <laughs> record is great, and that is a record all about sex, drugs, and debauchery. Right. But it's it's so big, and this upcoming song, Spider Bite Song, is another one of those that has a lot of drug implications, and it was tough for me to wrap my head around that at first. So let's hear a little bit of that right now. When you got that spider bite on your head I thought we would have to break up the band To lose your arm would surely upset The Spider Bite song is the fourth song off of Soft Bulletin. This is where I think the album really starts to take shape in terms of the sounds that it's it's looking for. And I think it starts to achieve this really cellular, not cellular, maybe secular is the word I'm looking for. It feels like its own universe mm-hmm. when I'm listening to this. And the piano mixed with this giant drum machine and just the, it's just right. loud but so atmospheric and so big. I think big more so than loud when I hear the song. How do you feel about the spider bite? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I feel like it's kind of abrupt and pretty at the same time somehow. Like with that, I think it's a drum that they speed up and slow down. So it's just like, you know, and it's so weird, but you start getting in that rhythm. And the reason that this is probably my favorite song in the album is because the lyrics, I guess, stood out to me. And along with the the piano melody, you know, like melody has a way of kind of influencing lyrics in a way you don't even realize. Absolutely. But um, yeah, it's I heard it at one point when I was going through a really rough time, very depressed. And, you know, sometimes when you're depressed, you just have this feeling like, wow, even if you know people love you in your life, you're like, man, there's no point, man. No one likes me. No one loves me. And then hearing this song. And Wayne Coyne basically saying, no, I love you. I would hate to see you die, and it would destroy me if you were destroyed. That's just really powerful, and it, it really made me cry the, when I was listening to it at that moment. And it's, it's just so beautiful and just so genuine and innocent. And that's the thing with this whole album and Wayne's lyrics is just innocence. And you, you were bringing up the drug influence. And Wayne is actually, he wasn't a drug user really. I mean, other than probably in his teen years. Mm. Um, I think it was more Stephen. I think Wayne, the reason it's just so trippy and strange and it sounds like he might be on acid is just he's pretty much a kid at heart. Sort of like Jonathan Richmond. It's just one of those people that are like, they look at the world and they're like, wow, a butterfly. Oh, my God. <laughs> this tree is so beautiful, you know. And they, you can really hear that in the lyrics. He talks about the mundane, you know, whatever, car accident and how that really impacted him and affected his life, his friend getting in a minor car accident. Exactly, you yeah. know. And now we see it as drug implications, the whole spider bite. If you weren't aware, it's not a spider bite. But at the time when they wrote it, they thought it was. Yes. Um, but it was, in fact, an infection from an IV injection exactly. of heroin. Yes. So, uh, yeah, Stephen had a 
a bit a nasty infection on his hand and because brown recluses in oklahoma and and missouri so i've seen many brown recluses in my day i had them all over my house uh they're very common so it wasn't unheard of that he had a spider bite on his hand yeah um but so he wrote this whole song and then steven's like hey wayne that wasn't a spider bite uh, about that, <laughs> which is almost way more powerful. Oh, for sure. You know, it's, I I complained earlier about how it's not as literal as I'd like it to be, but this is one of those. I think it, it just the way the song is constructed and the melodies of it being metaphorical here mm-hmm. really works, and I really like the way this song turned out. I like what you had to say about how it was just one of those things you needed at mm-hmm. one point in your life, and. It's not an original take to say that that's why music is so great. Right. But that's why music's so great. I mean, that's why I spend time doing this because ultimately, when you can be a companion to someone halfway across the world or through a pair of headphones or in a live setting when they're in the back row, they're barely hanging on and you're up on stage, that's why all of this matters. Right. And not every album is going to have those songs. But the ones that do, and they really strike a chord with people, I just, I think it's such a great thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that this song was there for you when you needed it. I'm a huge fan of the spider bite. Next is Buggin' off the soft bulletin. This is Buggin' off the Soft Bulletin. Owen, I'm going to be honest. I love this song. You do? I do. It is my second favorite song on the album. I think it's the closest to the opener, Race for the Prize, that we get. I think it kind of has that same vein. It's a little more upbeat. Mm-hmm. There's some pop sensibilities to it. For sure. I Again, in you know the current radio landscape, even, even 1999 when this record came out, probably not going to be getting much airtime. I think that's a safe bet. I think this is something that program directors would scoff at. Yeah. But there's something fun about this song, and I, I'm very much okay with that. I think that's what it's going for. And this this is kind of going back to some of the old Wayne Coyne songs of, like, from, like, Clouds Taste Metallic, This Here Giraffe, or even She Don't Use Jelly, where it's like, you know, the lyrics, that's not the point here. It's meant to be fun and you can still be experimental and be fun at the same time. You can make a weird-ass rock song that experiments in the studio that still has some pop sensibility. Absolutely. And that's, that's the point of this, and it has weird auto-tuned vocals. When I first heard it, I wasn't sure what to think about it because it, it's just a strange-sounding, almost like a vocoder, like a synthesizer, these vocals. Well, that's what I really like about it mm-hmm. is the way those vocals come through where they feel a little more present in the mix. Mm-hmm. I you know, I could not understand what he was saying the first time through, but the vocals were a little more up, and they were a little more powerful, and they felt like, even if they don't have meaning, they felt meaningful to the song, right. which is something that, on some of the songs that I'm not a fan of, I think that's where it kind of loses me. Right. Um, and that's, you know, I, I say that about really almost the genre as a whole is uh, even if the vocals aren't going to be number one in the mix and even if every song is not going to have this great meaning, the lyrics need to feel meaningful to the song. Right. I think this does a great job of that. 
Totally, yeah. It's like you couldn't pick better words or a title for the song. It sounds like bugs in your ears, the, the buzzing throughout the song. I don't care for bugs, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, nah, I'm not a, not, a, not a bug guy. I don't like insects. I don't, well, I don't like animals that much. Really? Now, I say that, and then some people go, oh, do you, you want to kick a dog? No. <laughs> There's a difference between not wanting pets yeah. and abusing animals. Right. Some people fail to see that difference. Right. Are you a pet guy? I'm a huge pet guy. What do you, I what love do you, what dogs. What do you got in your arsenal right now? Dogs? Uh, yeah. Well, I have a family dog. I don't have a dog right now. That's okay. You got a I'm not dog. a big cat fan. See, that's that's where I lose people because I say because I had yeah. I I grew up on ten acres. I at right. one point had dogs, horses, and cats all right. at the same time. I did not enjoy it. Yeah. Now I'm down to one family cat. Mm-hmm. That cat's almost 20 years old. Oh, my gosh. Why do cats live that long? My parents have had two cats reach the age of 20. How crazy is that? My grandma's cat was 21 oh when it died. Oh, my goodness. But there's something about cats that I I really like. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to become crazy cat guy. Yeah. But if I, I, I feel like I have to put my foot down in relationships from now on where I say, here's the deal. I put up with a lot. I'm a very understanding person. Right. Can't do dogs. Right. I don't think I can own a dog again in my life. I just, for whatever reason, and people are exiting out of this podcast app right now <laughs> because they can't believe I'm saying I'm such leaving. a thing. I know. Owen stormed out. <laughs> but I cats, I'm like, all right. Like, I don't totally understand where you're coming from, but I kind of like the vibe you're giving off. That's kind of you. You are a cat. Thank you You know, very much. it's like that... <laughs> Okay, I get it. Yeah. You're fun, I'm but you're also mysterious. Yeah. You know, I don't understand you quite. Hey, most you know, people that's, don't. That's the thing. Like when you told me your favorite bands are the Smiths, Blink One Eighty Two, and the Silver Jews. I don't know if I said Blink One Eighty Two. Oh wait, did you didn't say that? You <laughs> was like, I like Blink One Eighty Two a lot. They they have they are not one of my favorite bands, nor <laughs> right, have they well, been described as such. I think you said something. Uh, Pop punk or something. Probably the front bottoms or modern baseball right, right. or something in that vein. And that was like, okay, who is this guy? Yeah. Like, because Silver Jews, for most people, is something that you've listened to Pavement first, you've listened to Dinosaur Jr., you've you've gotten into the world of indie first. Yes. I'm like, where is this coming from? So that's why, like, you struck me as a cat, and the, as a the human. the messed up part of that is, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this, and I and I promise we'll get back to the flaming lips in a second. <laughs> But I'm not a pavement guy. You've told me yeah, this, yeah. I, for whatever reason, pavement, and I would like to discuss pavement on the show at some point because whether I'm a fan or not is kind of irrelevant. They have a lot of music that is relevant to this show and kind of what I'm trying to get across here mm-hmm. of, you know, not shaming people for bands they've never heard of, but rather hoping that I can bring bands into the lives of people that need them, whether they know it or not right now. Pavement very much falls into that grouping right. of a band that could change someone's life. It and changed my life. It's a, it's a bold claim, but it's happened. Yeah. I've got proof right here, and I can sell you on Pavement again and again yeah. with that. But, yeah, I I have cat-like tendencies now that you say it. <laughs>
So what what is the light is kind of um, it's a slower song on the album. It For definitely sure. brings it down, especially after Bug In, where it's just this very hyper sound. We're slowing it down. It's a very emotional kind of thing. I wouldn't say it's my favorite song in the album, but I think it, it really ties it together. So I think it's important on there. That's exactly my thoughts on it. It's It feels like a gateway into something new. It's not one of my favorite songs, but if I was to resequence or want to rework this album, it's making the cut, and it's probably staying in the same exact spot. Right. It's very much not a hit, not designed to be, but it has a purpose, and I'm okay with that. Which is funny because the next track is also that. You know yes, what I mean? Yeah. It's two tracks of that, which I'm okay with. It's kind of a, an experimentation on what an album should be. I know you're, well, let, you're grimacing a little bit. Let's hear a little, a little bit of The Observer before I decide whether or not I'm okay with it. Okay. So the Observer is an instrumental. I am okay with instrumentals. Owen, where do you stand on instrumentals on on a record? You cool with it? Oh yeah, I love them. I uh, wouldn't. I wouldn't say I love them, but I'm yeah. okay with them. I, I'm, yeah. Go ahead. No, what were you gonna say? Well, I think instrumentals. Th- no one ever talks about them, but there's sometimes the reason that the album is as concise as it is. And I think talking about Nutramilk Hotel. There's, whatever, two or three instrumentals on there. I believe so, yeah. There, the, I think there's two. The Fool, which is just, like, so amazing, and it really it ties it together. I think, although The Observer, in my mind, isn't as great as The Fool on Nutramilk Hotel on their uh, second record, I think it's just it's a very ambient thing. I, I always picture myself, because I've done this before, driving at night, hearing the song with that really moody synth. and then the the delay you know it's just this very like spacey thing and to me this i actually have a playlist and i'm a very obsessed with with space i have a playlist about songs that are about space or somehow feel like you're in space i need i need to hear songs from this playlist before you continue what's what's on your space playlist so i got race for the prize up there because to me that's like some sort of space battle you know yeah exactly i was right it's in the title that no race for the prize yeah we're on the same page there um i got i got the observer on there because to me it's just like i imagine you're i always think about 2001 the stanley kubrick film yeah space odyssey yeah so like they're just flying through space you hear this boom boom you know and uh, I got uh, Beach House on there. I got David Bowie, of course, and I, to, uh, to or what is it? Space Oddity. Yes, uh, is my favorite song of all time because I just feel like it p- perfectly describes and musically describes being in space, and that's always been a dream. Wait, so of what's mine. your what's so your your goal is to get into space, or maybe not a goal but a dream? Yeah. I, for when I was a kid, I was obsessed with planes and space and, and aeronautics and NASA. And aeronautics? I've never heard that word before. <laughs> God, that well, made me feel NASA is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. I thought it was just NASA. <laughs> okay, all right, that's a that's a blow to the ego. But so, <laughs> so space. What's what do you like about it? I don't know. Something about it. Just the discovery of it. The the secludedness of it. I'm a very uh, 
introverted person. I, I don't know what it is. The vastness, yet loneliness, yet mysteriousness of it yeah. has just always intrigued me. And I think this album, if I were in space, this would probably be the first record I'd play when I get up there. You know what? That is, I'm sick of asking Desert Island picks from now on. I'm going to ask, what did you, what what do you want to hear when you get into space? I right. think that's a far more interesting question. Right, floating in the tin can. Yeah. Yeah. God, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know what I'd say to that because, right. you know, most records I like are 25 minutes. So I'm gonna get up into space. <laughs> I'm gonna cycle through a Joyce Manor album, right. the, or a Blink 182 album. You know, who knows? Right, I, right. Enema of the State might be my number one pick. <laughs> and then I'm gonna go. Oh, all right. I guess I gotta go see space now. Right. Um, I don't mind instrumentals. Right. I think I think a lot of them accomplish a goal you talked about neutral milk hotel we talked about the silver jews earlier there's an instrumental on every one of the silver jews albums Mm -hmm. that's cool four minute slow instrumentals (laughs) probably don't need to be on the record that's where it's again it's one of those it sets the table right i understand why it's there this one if i'm reworking the album a little bit i can probably cut this and it's not gonna you know I'm, i'm not gonna miss it right and i think that just again that's you versus me. I To me, it's perfectly atmospheric, and that's what I value in a record. I don't know what you think about Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, if you've ever listened to it. No, my relationship with Van Morrison is whenever I go to record stores, I get really excited because I go to the M section, and I see tons and tons of records in the M-O, and I think, oh, my God, I've hit the Morrissey jackpot. And then every time, it's just Van, <laughs> Van Morrison, Morrison records. And I'm like, oh, yeah. God, this guy again? But no, so your deal with Van Morrison yeah, so here. Astral Weeks, and this... This is only the only record I think that is like this from Van Morrison, but it's perfectly atmospheric. And every song, you know, like normally you'd be kind of annoyed. Every song kind of sounds the same in a way. But when you really sit with it, you give it time, you you give it a little patience, then it's like, okay, I'm I'm in this world. Van Morrison has designed this world for me, and I think the Flaming Lips did that with this. So, Waiting for Superman was a song when I first heard it, I did not like. And I didn't listen to the album first. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I had heard tracks from it. Well, Soft Bolton, one of those where you feel like you need to listen to it all the way through your first few times, or can you pull out singles and then kind of build from there? I would actually listen to probably Race for the Prize and really Waiting for Superman, even though I, I said I didn't like it when I first heard it. I would listen to those two, maybe the Spider Bite song, and then explore it. And I think that's important, and I do this a lot with albums, so that when you're listening to an album, you can't just be like, oh, I'm bored, what's next? Exactly. You know, you're like, you know at least a song you know is coming up. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of looking at things, for right. sure. So um, now I love the song. Yeah, so what changed? Well, I, for a while I didn't 
respect piano in songs. I I was really a huge Dinosaur Jr. fan, huge Sonic Youth and Nirvana fan. They never used acoustic. I mean, Dinosaur Jr. used acoustic guitars, but they never used acoustic guitars or or pianos for the most part. Yes, um, I. God, I completely understand what you mean about I yeah. did not respect pianos. I'm still on the fence about it, right? But I can I can come to respect them even if I if I don't like them all the time. Right. God, that is. But now I'm a, I'm a piano obsessive. Really? Yes. I mean, in fact, I I've been looking into becoming a piano tuner, going to school to do that, just because I I don't know what it was, but I suddenly oh I do kind of know what it was. I I got a girlfriend and she had a piano at her parents' house, and I nice. I just played that for like two years. So then I was just like, oh my God, the piano is a beautiful instrument, and it's so acoustic. Yet so simple, yet so formulated at the same time, but it's it's got this like crazy decay in the sound, and every piano sounds completely different in my mind. And I just felt like after learning about pianos, after having a respect for them, waiting for Superman was just like, oh, I get it. And also, I, I think I originally didn't like Wayne's vocals. I was a big Fleming Lips fan at this point, but primarily Yoshimi... Clyde's Taste Metallic and Transmissions. And where do those records differ in sound, or at least vocally, right. from what this has? Is there a huge difference there? <sighs> oh, completely. Okay, I say that as uh, someone yeah. that has literally never heard a song off of those. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I would recommend listening to those albums. We'll for see. sure. We'll uh, see. <laughs> no, and I think you would like Transmissions of the Satellite Heart. Okay. Uh, it's, the vocals on it are very, like, whiny. Kind of like Wayne Coyne at his max sometimes. Kind of like those bands I like where they're just whining. Yeah, (laughs) But it's a weird voice. It's kind of like a strange Neil Young thing. And then on this one, it's like, what are you doing? Like he's hardly even singing in moments. Like in this song, he's kind of just mumbling, is it getting heavy? Yeah. You know, he's just kind of mumbling. There's a delay in his vocals. I think I didn't like that at first when I was a kid or whenever I first heard it. Because um, I I was used to Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots where he it's these big choruses and stuff with the vocals and this is more about the instrumentation than the vocals versus Yoshimi Battles of the Pink Robots is all about do you realize you know they, they have these like big choruses that everyone sings along in yeah you know? well it's funny you say that because I I think we have a a similar thought process on this song even if i'm on a much more accelerated version of it because i wasn't crazy about this the first few times i heard it but i have enough people in my life that i know that like the flaming lips that i over the past week i've been just floating floating that question <laughs> hey, hey soft bulletin uh, yeah <laughs> what, what do you think and the song that everybody i talked to mentioned was waiting for superman and how much they enjoyed it and i came back to this one specifically whereas like race for the prize i listened to a lot this week because i've just I've, it turns out I really like the song, yeah. bugging kind of the same way. This was one that I've kept coming back to because it intrigues me, and it intrigues me lyrically because I like the I like the concept of this song, mm-hmm. and there's something gentle mm-hmm. about this that I really enjoy and respect, and I I like the way this song progresses. I like the lyricism in it. Right. It's the premise of this song is what keeps me coming back to right. it. Right. It's like you don't we don't know if Superman's coming, but just you wait. He's he's not denying his powers. He's not for going you. just yet. You he know, might he, come he's back. just he might be lifting some heavier things right now. Absolutely. You and know. then, you know, Superman comes back and then suddenly everything changes right. or suddenly everything has changed, which is the next song on the record. Put in all the vegetables. 
Suddenly everything has changed is what follows waiting for waiting for a Superman and God I just I just want the song to get to it because right. it's not it's not a full on instrumental but even if it was it takes so long to build to any sort of climax it's kind of the issue I have with the observer of like I'm cool with this idea if you want to be a little atmospheric mm-hmm. if you want to set the table for what's to come I'm okay with that right but get to it and I get that argument for sure. And this, to be honest, is probably one of my least favorite songs in the album. I do think it needs to be there, though. I think it's like the buildup. And I think the buildup is to feeling yourself disintegrate. And the gash, I know that's in between it, but the gash is kind of this weird side thing. Yeah, well, let's hear a little yeah. bit of the gash yeah. before we continue. Is So the gash, like Yoshimi battles the pink robots or race for the prize is this big battle anthem. You know, if you were going into some intergalactic war, this would be playing as you're fighting. It's dramatic. It's orchestral. I've never heard a song quite like this, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. There's, there are so many elements going on, and it kind of goes back to what you said earlier. If You know, it's really only three guys in a studio, yeah. which you hear this and... Uh, you think it, you you not only want to play this going into battle, you right. think it's an army creating these sounds. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it. I don't know exactly how they uh, recorded the vocals on this. I would love to know, but I, I think from what I can guess, it's probably Wayne, and then they pitched up his voice a few times or or lowered it, and then just kind of had this huge atmospheric operatic sound with it. Um, and like I was saying before, like suddenly everything has changed. Is it's along the storyline of the album, but the gash is kind of the side quest that you learn about a little bit. This little side battle that's not the end, but it kind of helps the story come along. Absolutely, and, and the gash is one of those where, and again, it's why I think I'm, I'm okay with suddenly everything has changed in the sense that I recognize that it's building to something bigger, and we really see it in the gash and then in the next song, Feeling Yourself Disintegrate, but in the gash, things get really big, and the mm-hmm. album which had a lot of sounds and a lot going on, it now transitions from more, in my mind, it it, uh, transitions from more experimental to epic. And everything Mm -hmm. they're doing, I like that that soldier and that war analogy you used because that's kind of what it feels like, that these songs are going to war. And the gash isn't necessarily one of my favorites because again there's so much build but by the end of it there's right. you know there's it it almost sounds like there's a choir involved in it right. there's so much to it that i leave the gash and i leave a lot of these songs going you know i wish the first 45 seconds were just the song i wish we'd get into it right but every you know every time i give this album a, a full listen and i give these songs a chance at the end of every song i'm going well that was pretty good yeah yeah which is again not something that i necessarily anticipated I think if I didn't have to listen to this album, a lot of these where it's just like, I wish there was like a radio friendly mix of this almost to just cut down right, on right. some of the sounds, but I understand why you like it. Yeah. And again, when these songs become fully formed, 
and you've got lyrics there and you've got a melody that I can follow. I really like a lot of these. Right. And The Gash is one of those. This next song, Feeling Yourself Disintegrate, right. kind of in the same boat. Feeling Yourself Disintegrate is, to me, the epitome of what this record is. Because I hate the first, like, 15 seconds of this. When it's the mouth noises. You hate that? I have no time for that. (laughs) I don't want to tolerate it. I can't stand that those are there. To me, that is very annoying. I do not care for those sounds. The rest of the song? (laughs) Outstanding. This is up there, you know, Race for the Prize, Buggin'. Feeling Yourself Disintegrate, those are the three songs I'm taking away from this album that right. will will be implemented into future playlists that I'll I'll take with me. Because this is, it continues on that trend like the gash of things get really big here and they feel really epic. And right. I'm very on board with that. Where do you stand on Feeling Yourself Disintegrate? Probably one of my favorite songs on the album. And to be honest, what drew me in were the mouth sounds originally. Ugh, and how they, they, they're in stereo and they're going back and forth. I don't know what it was. At first, I found it kind of weird. It's like a beatboxing in a song. You know? But then I... There's something... And this is probably just me having a respect for weird sounds. Yes. But I just... I was like, wow, there's something inherently musical about that. (laughs) Even if you hate it, it's like... And that's the only way to describe drum beats. If you have a drummer in your band, you have to go... You know? (laughs) Well, that that right there, I think, speaks to just our our different mindsets. You you look at that as inherently musical. Right. I do not. That could have been cut. Again, I think this song is great. I think this song uh, verges on on being beautiful. It's really impressive another one of those where not only are the lyrics present in the mix but the lyrics feel like they matter in the song and that the song is telling a story and it's it's great to hear i love this and this is this is track 11 we get to almost the end of the album here but feeling yourself disintegrate i i again take out the first 15 seconds i have have nothing but good things to say about it after the fact and and just the whole thing like learning that this was after when coin's dad died Wow, what a way to describe someone dying of cancer. Feeling yourself disintegrate. That's just like, you couldn't have said it better. It's it's really heavy. Yeah. And then after that, we close the record. It's getting heavy. With Sleeping on the Roof. We'll hear a little bit of that now. So Sleeping Off the Roof closes the record, and I talked about in the very first episode, Weezer's Pinkerton, 
how it is such a dynamite record and how everything is so good and builds and builds and builds and then the last song lets me down. Mm-hmm. I have never been more let down by a final song <laughs> than this. I cannot believe this is what closes the record. Really? There is so much build. There is so much noise. There is so much going on for 11 songs. Yeah. And then they silently fade away with a three-minute instrumental. Am I am I missing something on this? Well, aren't you feeling yourself disintegrate there? I was feeling myself disintegrate <laughs> in the last song. That's why right. it was called but Feeling was, Yourself Disintegrate. But that was the climax. You know, sometimes you need a, need a resolution. I'm not I'm not feeling resolved from this song. This right. I I was so I thought that I had missed something or then I had accidentally shuffled it and that this was a B-side or or a different album, a throwaway track, maybe it was right. a demo. I could not believe that this was the final song on the record. I was so disappointed because it was it was building to a point and especially um, even on the first listen, the gash and feeling yourself disintegrate, I, I really enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, it's going to end. The The closest thing I compare, con, could compare it to was I was hoping it would be uh, like Morrissey's Vox Hall and I, which I don't know if you've ever heard that record or not. I have not. But it ends with this song called Speedway, which is one of Morrissey's best songs, Smith's or Solo, period. I think it's for another episode, but people that ignore Morrissey's solo work are missing the boat completely. <laughs> Again, different episode, not now. But that that album ends with Speedway, which is the climax. And it builds and builds and builds. And then that song almost exists in its own little universe of, of building and climaxing. Because it sounds like nothing on the rest of that record. But it fits. And I thought we were going to get something like that that just worked within its own little universe, worked as a track 12 more than anything. That's what I kind of wanted from this was I wanted something that felt like a track 12. Right. This felt like track four leading into something bigger. I did not gotcha. feel resolved from this. I felt conflict, quite honestly. I could not believe this is what they decided in the album with. All right. I, I, I see that argument, and it, really I can't argue much against it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel like, in my mind, this is kind of the closing credits. You know? Okay. It, it's not really meant to be like, you know, the album has already ended at this point. And th- what is this track like? Oh, is it really three minutes? It's Yeah, it's three minutes I, In and my head, it's seconds. 30 seconds long. Really? Yeah, I don't know. It's just like you're you're left to sit and think about what you just heard in this uh, in this track. And it's you're just sitting and thinking, and then it has this crazy, escalating, noisy ending, and it just goes away. It's like a story that you know at some point is going to come back. You're like you're kind of hoping for a sequel, but that's just that's in my mind, and obviously this is very subjective. No, that, but yeah, here's the thing that works. I can't I can't dispute that. I I like that way of thinking, and I wish I could convince myself to think like that. Right. I tend to look at last songs on the album of, again, I that closing credit deal of kind of it puts a bow on everything, or. I really like albums, and this is such a broad statement. There's there's no specific example, but from what I've learned is I like albums where that last song is so intense, and all, not a, not it doesn't have to be a hit, but one of those where it makes me want to go, oh, that song I have to replay this record now. That song was so good, I want to keep listening to this. Right. This is it feels like a conclusion. It feels right. like the end of something, which is not a bad thing. There are albums I like that have that quality, but. 
I was a little let down by this. And, and I get that. I, I think your argument makes sense. Even And I, I've always been for for the idea that there's no reason to even argue albums because you may like something that you could never make an argument for. Exactly. Well, you know? that's one of my big things with this was coming in with the idea that this is not the type of music that I typically enjoy, but I also recognize that it's very good and that I can take something away from this. I, I take away three songs that I really enjoyed, and I take away some different thoughts, one from listening to this album, but especially after talking to you, of looking to approach music a little bit differently in the future. And, you know, whether or not that happens, we'll see. I'm quite stubborn. <laughs> but I I like this album. Right. And I, I could say I did not like it the first even two or three times I listened to this. But right. as I doubled that that listener count, I I came away enjoying it, a little bit more familiar with what I was getting into, and I really think that helps with an album like this right. of understanding the context behind it. Again, for you know someone like me with more of a punk rock background that's used to you know modern baseball blitzing through two-minute songs and calling it a day and everything is very literal and very accessible – this is not that, and mm-hmm. it took me a minute to get through it. But by the end of it, I liked what I liked the album. I liked my experience listening to it. Pitchfork gave this a ten out of ten when they reviewed it. For whatever reason, that review is no longer on the website. But if you go to archive.org or just you know Google Pitchfork Soft Bulletin really? Review, it's not on the website. Um, I don't know why they scrubbed some of those old reviews. Ah. Um, and this was a ten out of ten. I mean, they right. You know, they they, they save that. They scrubbed. Uh, Bell and Sebastian, Boy with the Arab Strap, the original review, because they gave what? it like a point eight or something, which I'm I'm very upset about that because well, the they... Boy with the Arab Strap. Right, where do you stand on Bell and Sebastian, real quick? Well, I like Bell and Sebastian. My I, man. For me, it's like Pitchfork. They were they had an era where it was just like almost power hungry, where they could destroy, they could make or break an artist, and they really love to do that. They love to hand out those zeros like absolutely like well, chocolate. It's it's. That website in particular, but it speaks to the internet as a whole. And I talked about this on the Vampire Weekend, uh, al- or the uh, Vampire Weekend show that I did, where we talked about the first Vampire Weekend record. Cool. Was if you read the reviews of it at the time, they are so opinionated and the takes are so bold. And that doesn't nece- necessarily speak to one website in my mind, but rather. Internet culture is is much more active now, but it's very different. And mm-hmm. a lot of people, I think especially when they're talking about art and reviewing the arts, don't necessarily commit to these ideas so viciously as they used to, yeah. which is good and bad. Right. But this is a 10.0. Leave it up on the website. So for Pitchfork, it's a 10.0. For me, again, it took me a <laughs> long time to understand this. Drum roll. Yeah, drum roll. I leave knowing knowing that this is a great album, right? But also knowing that it's not for me. So if I'm writing this review, if I'm rating this album out of ten, I give it I give it a seven, and that is not a a C, a C plus we'll say, okay? Because it's not a slap in the face seven, right? I that is a this is not totally for me, but damn, it's really good to a large group of people, and I re- and I respect that. And I understand that I can't go any higher because there's still things on this album that just, you know, they make me roll my eyes or just like, get, you know, get, get to it, get, get to the good part. I'm right, sick right. of, I'm sick of waiting around. Even if it's only 30 seconds, 
we're living in a content world. I got other stuff I could be <laughs> listening to. Let's let's get to the action, all right? Right. But for Owen, what's your rating? Well, I tend to hate rating albums. I th- I'm going to make you do it, though. I know, I know. Um, this it's, this it's guy hard. Su- such a musician. I, I don't want to rate the art. <laughs> well, Everything's it's just, great, it's man. It's tough for me because it's like, I mean, I'm going to say a 10 just because it's like, it's been so important in my life. Yeah. But also, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is a 10, and I enjoy that album more than this album. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that that's what's weird. Do I give? Do I make... I don't even know what my favorite album is, but like, whatever, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or like the White Album or something. Do mm-hmm. I make that the max, and then I have to judge everything based on that, or is it is this in its own world a ten? I see. I subscribe more to that thinking. I think greatness works on a sliding scale. Yeah. And I think, you know, this can be at a ten. Out of, this can be a ten out of ten, and Touche Amore's Stage Four can be at a ten out of ten. And they are drastically different records with drastically different goals. Right. But ultimately, they hold such merit and such value mm-hmm. that for some people, and I would love to meet the person that has those two records as right. 10 out of 10s. Those are very different. A An experimental rock opera almost <laughs> in a hardcore punk record. Right. Very different. <laughs> but in the, in the minds of, of the listener, they might hold the same sort of value even if they're different. So right. Well, okay. So rethinking this. I might give it more of a nine or a okay. nine point five. All right. Um, I'm whittling you down. You'll be yeah. at a, you'll be at a seven well, just, by the end of this. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about it, like if there are songs on it that sometimes I I skip. Yes. And that's true. Yeah. On Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, I don't skip any songs, you know. And maybe that that knocks off a few points. But this has just been so powerful for me, like learning about recording and how you can write a song and how you don't have to just do obviously verse chorus verse or whatever um this is like it Owen, just Owen, yeah. it sounds like you give the, give this album a 10 yeah the, the I, passion in your voice right now it's a 10 and you can skip you can skip songs right. of the album it's still a 10 <laughs> this feels this feels yeah. like a 10 for you <laughs> and it is and i think more my rating would be two thumbs up you know Perfect. i think it's more of a in my mind it's a two thumbs up one thumb up no thumbs up <laughs> and, this and really is i don't give two thumbs down because i i try to be as unopinionated about music as i can if i don't like something okay maybe i'll like it in the future i don't want to you know say what i'm you know i don't want to guess too quickly oh and you're just a better person than i am i think i think <laughs> i think that comes down to, that. to moral fabrics and character right. that you are just better i think than i am well i just also I know how important music is, and sometimes when people bash albums, I will say it hurts my feelings. You did not hurt my feelings at all. But like, Good. And sometimes my feelings get hurt if someone's like, oh, that record sucks. Why do you like that? Oh, and my favorite active band is the Front Bottoms. <laughs> okay, it is a tough life to live. People, yeah. people love the Front Bottoms, right. but people love even more telling you how much they hate the Front right. Bottoms. It's a tough life. I get it. Yeah. But I think that's an admirable way of thinking. I ask everybody, where does this fall on the basic scale? Is this is this a, a cup of Starbucks coffee or is this exclusive indie cred? I think I know your answer, but it's a yeah. a cup of tablets of acid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is there is no basic values to this. I don't expect Visco girls to be putting on the softballs <laughs> yeah. anytime soon. Well, this who is, knows? I don't know. Hey, it would be a fascinating culture development. I would right. welcome it. I don't expect it. 
but I welcome it if it happens. Yeah. And then finally, Owen, who needs to hear this album right now? Well, if you're in a depressed state or if you have lost a loved one, I think this is the perfect album. Um, and I'm a person that when I feel depressed, I put on some Elliot Smith. Oh, and, God, me too. And Elliot Smith may not bring you back up. It's some form of catharsis. <laughs> it lets you feel that you're human a little bit. Absolutely. But the, the soft bulletin, that's when you're ready to be happy again. God, so, I like that. There you have there it. There you go. Owen, what do you have to plug? Well, I'm in a band called Paddlefish, and we will be going on tour from January 2nd to the 12th. Okay. Around the Midwest and the East Coast. Um, we will be coming out with a record at some point in 2020. We're working on that right now, and actually tomorrow I'm going to go mix it awesome. um, in the That's studio, awesome. and I, I've i been looking forward to that for the past two months. So Good. Good yeah. for you. All right. Well, very cool. And where can you find Paddlefish? You can find us on Bandcamp at paddlefish.bandcamp.com, or you could... If you search Paddlefish on Facebook or Instagram or Paddlefish Band or Paddlefish Music, I'm sure you could find us on there. Awesome. But we got we got some albums up. Feel free to listen. Very cool. Well, Owen, I'm glad you were here. I glad I'm glad we could figure out whether or not I like the soft bulletin <laughs> because it was a, a collaborative effort to figure out what the hell I thought about this album. Right. Um well, thank you for having me. Hey, it's been Owen, a pleasure to talk about something I love. I, I'm going to tell you right now, you'll be back. <laughs> oh, you can yeah. follow Art School Albums on Twitter and Instagram at Art School Albums. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Case Low. And until next time, I thank you for listening to Art School Albums. <laughs>